What does magic sound like? How can cloth have a voice? These kinds of outside-the-box questions make the movies we love more immersive and can result in vivid, original stories. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author and sound designer Essa Hansen. Her debut novel is Nofet Gloss, a mind-bending new space opera from Orbit Books. Essa and I discuss sound designing the Marvel Cinematic Universe, how to write found families, and the process of creating a bubble multiverse that bends the laws of physics. This was such a fun conversation. I hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Essa. I'm so glad you could make it on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. I've been seeing uh, you around at a lot of these virtual events lately, so uh, I guess I'm honored to be part of that chain. (laughs) And so just to start things off, you have such a cool bio on your author page, I have to say. Uh, So I want to ask a couple questions about that. So it says you uh, practice Japanese swordsmanship. How did that come about? Yeah, so a lot of my cool hobbies are on the back burner now <laughs> because I'm so busy um, and I'd love to resume them after, you know, the pandemic has cleared. So Japanese swordsmanship, I found a dojo that was teaching a combination of iaido, which is drawing, cutting, and solo forms, uh, kenjutsu, which is more general and includes other weapons and empty hand techniques, and kendo, which most people will probably be familiar with, the combat sport in full armor. Um some people have probably seen that before. And we also did tamashigiri, test cutting with a sharpened blade. Very cool. So do you have like a wall of swords in your own personal set of armor or anything? Or is that <laughs> mostly like stay in the dojo? I do have armor. Um, I don't have walls to display everything. I would like to. I have like five swords, but they're they're in a sword bag right now. One day I'll have a wall of weapons. <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, maybe I'm projecting a little bit, but I think that's like everyone who like falls in love with the fantasy genre or something as a young age. I think that's kind of the dream. Right. You have the bookshelves and you have the wall of weapons. <laughs> yes, exactly. But yeah, speaking of those cool hobbies, I guess uh, you're a licensed falconer as well. That's right. In the U.S., it's highly regulated on a federal and state level. So to get started is a two-year apprenticeship under a master falconer. And at the start, you have to pass a written exam and have your facilities and equipment all inspected. And apprentices are limited to an American kestrel or a red-tailed hawk. So, you, you know, you can't jump straight to an eagle. <laughs> gotcha. That is really interesting. And now is that, this is probably showing my ignorance right here, but what do you do with that? Is, is there like competitions that you perform in or is it just purely for fun? Um, so... It's a sport and your birds are your hunting partner. So you actually will go out in the field and the birds flying free and you're hunting game. So like with my red-tailed hawks in Northern California here, most of our game are like jackrabbit and we have some pheasant and quail and things like that. And with my falcon, I would hunt pigeons and snipe and all of that, ducks. So you're actively going out in the field and the bird's flying free and you're hunting, working together, um, the falconer on the ground and the bird in the air. And uh, you hope they come back with you when you're done <laughs> and you hope you've caught something. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine that. I, I would be concerned since I have no falconing skills that my falcon would just fly away and never come back. 
Yeah, and they're wild creatures still. Like they've you've built a relationship and they know that their chances of success hunting are higher with you helping them than they are on their own. But there's still always the chance that, you know, they'll get distracted and chase something really far and then you're in a telemetry chase or, you know, your relationship's not as good as you hoped and they're saying, bye, I can do it on my own. Right. I guess, do they have like a GPS tracker on their leg or something in case they do fly off? Yeah. Um, there's GPS now, which is amazing. The technology has gotten small enough that raptors can physically carry the weight but when, when I was doing falconry, we used telemetry. So they have like a little antenna. Um, oh, cool. And then you have a receiver. So you're, you know, looking around for the beeps and you, you're tracking them that way. But now you, there's like an app and you can see their little dot on like Google Maps and they're, the whole trailer where they're going and their altitude and all that. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, more relevant, even though these seem like highly relevant hobbies to someone who writes speculative fiction, uh, can you remember what first made you fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? I honestly can't remember ever not loving science fiction and fantasy. Like as a kid, I was always being read to and always reading sci-fi and fantasy especially. And it was the genre of TV shows and movies we watched. And it was the make-believe games I played with kids, especially fantasy. Uh, and I lived in a very magical environment up in the Southern California foothills. And after that, in other backcountry type settings with lush, na lush nature and all kinds of areas to explore. So it was very easy to feel like I lived in a fantasy world as a kid. And my imagination just had tons to work with. Normally, uh, when I was playing outside, I would kind of do those make-believe games as well, but I'm in like a suburban neighborhood or something where all the houses look the same or like a backyard that like, you know, you could pace around in about 30 seconds. So <laughs> not that much there. Right. So I had like, yeah, boulder fields and like creeks and, you know, caves to explore and, and you know, chumash ruins and, um, you know, forests and lakes and like the whole, the whole gamut. That's amazing. So we've been talking about these cool hobbies and everything, but you also have what sounds like one of the coolest day jobs of anyone that I've spoken to before. So <laughs> I guess just how did you get into sound design to begin with? Yeah, it stemmed, I think, from playing piano, which led me to start composing some music and then scoring little scenes or themes from my writing at the time. And I was really interested in how sound and music affects our brain, our emotions, and what we visualize when we hear something or where it transports us. And later, when looking at a career path, sound for visual media seemed to be the right intersection of storytelling and audio, um, plus being both artistic and highly technical together. So that really appealed to me. Right. Yeah, that's definitely uh, an appealing career, which is one that uh, I didn't even realize existed until not that long ago. Uh, I mean, maybe I'm just more ignorant than average, but I never realized just how much work went into the sound behind films, right? Because the visuals are right there in your face, but the sound, I guess, kind of just slipped by me. Mm -hmm. Like we say, if we're doing our job right, you don't really notice the sound in the films. And also like special features in that always focus on the visual effects because it's cooler, you know, <laughs> or like how it was made. And many people don't realize how much of the sound and dialogue they hear in films is added and carefully crafted after the movie has been shot. Like everything from ambiences to cloth and footsteps we redo. The sound recordist on set is mainly concerned with capturing clean dialogue, which is harder to replace and match later. 
Yeah, I know uh, getting into podcasting, one of the first things I had to realize was that it's a lot harder to get like really crystal clear, clean sounds than uh, I just assumed that somebody held up a mic and pointed at the actors <laughs> and everything was perfect. Yeah, no, you'll, and you'll have wind machines and you'll have, you know, traffic or planes or other like machines going on. Even the camera itself may, has a hum and like has a noise when they're filming. So it's an art in itself to capture really great production audio. And we'll end up having to replace some of that after in post-production if it's too noisy. And that, again, is an art to try and, you know, fit in a cleanly recorded sentence or word into the more natural, messy dialogue that was recorded on set and make them sound like they were in the same place. Yeah, I was watching a tutorial on that dialogue replacement not too long ago, and like I didn't even think about if you do record the dialogue afterwards, you then maybe have to add in some extra messiness, I guess, uh, my very technical term there, to kind of like make it sound like it was recorded live. Yeah, you'll you'll grab some noise, like a clean little bit of noise from the production and sort of slather that underneath the clean recording to make it sound like the noise is present. And the re-recording mixer will be... Um, EQing the clean recording to try and make it sound essentially crappier <laughs> and fit with whatever <laughs> the situation was on set. I'm always in awe when I watch them work because it's, it's difficult. Yeah, it sounds like it. Uh, well, I imagine you have people who have just tons of misconceptions about what your job actually entails when you say that you're a sound designer. So I guess what's just the biggest difference between what people think your job is and what it actually involves? Uh, when I say I work in post-production for films, most people assume that I'm either part of the music department or that I do Foley, which is one category of what our editorial team does, but it's not like the entirety of post-production sound. But Foley is one of the funnest things to show on video with like all kinds of props and shoes being performed in sync to the film, which is why I think people know what that is or have seen it in special features or something versus sound design or sound editing, which isn't shown off as much. Right. I can imagine to a certain point someone uh, at a workstation editing on their computer is not uh, <laughs> as appealing as watching people recreate these crazy sounds. Yeah. And I've done like behind the scenes kind of videos where they want to show off something about the sound design. I'm like, all right, what, what on my computer can I show that like, seems interesting? And usually we try and show off like um, recording some kind of object or creature or something like that, you know, out in the field, which is much more interesting than working on a workstation. Gotcha. I guess otherwise you might end up with that whole like 80s film where the hacker's doing something that's just random bits on the screen flashing, <laughs> looking pretty. Yeah. And like the software we use doesn't look exciting. I guess you could have like plugins up and stuff that look um, sort of futuristic, but yeah, it's not super glamorous. <laughs> Well, you did mention that uh, part of what you do is you go out and you record those sounds. Uh, so what was just the most challenging sound you've ever had to record? The most challenging. The first one that comes to mind is recording camels for John Carter of Mars. We wanted them for the thoats, these big alien beasts of burden in the film. But that camel recording session was an intersection of like all of the things that can be really difficult with field recording. So one, getting animals to vocalize the way you want. Often you have to use food or introduce or separate to animals. Um, and sometimes they just seem to shut up just because the sound recorders is there. Like that's the day where they don't do the thing that they always do. Yep. <laughs> that is really common. And then dealing with lots of background noise. So there were like turkeys and cars and birds and horses and so on, making it hard to isolate just the camel sounds that I wanted. 
And then I was dealing with a fussy handler who kind of wasn't very accommodating to what I needed for sound. And then I had a time limit pressure, so only an hour to like get as much as I could. Yeah, that sounds like, I don't know, a lot of uh, the audio side of your job seems very like time crunch intensive, like you got to get it right in a few takes. When I guess from hearing post-production at first, I would think, oh, you know, you've got like an extended period of time to like sit down and try again and again until you get it right. But obviously the real world doesn't work that way. Yeah, a lot of the creativity happens under pressure, um, especially towards the end of the film when when everything's sort of coming together. The film's finishing changing and like the visual effects are coming in. So we're seeing a lot of things for the first time and we're getting notes from the clients. So there's a lot of creativity that has to happen like within an hour and it's difficult to switch gears. Um, but I do try, there is a more leisurely time period at the very, very beginning when I'm doing really early sound design and trying to nail like the aesthetic and some of the big new design, especially in sci-fi and fantasy when you're making up like new magic and aliens and creatures and technology. I try and really get my creativity going then when I have the time and I'm not rushed and even create more sounds that I need so that maybe later when I'm in the time crunch, I'll be like, oh, that thing I made <laughs> or like this palette of sounds um, that I didn't think I'd use are useful now. That makes sense. I guess especially as you're getting into that three week or so crunch right before the film releases, uh, definitely anything you can have to prepare yourself in advance of that, the better. Yeah. I guess something with sound design that is interesting to me is just like hearing that you've worked on all of these major, I guess, especially Marvel films, I think are probably very recognizable to science fiction and fantasy fans. Um, but is there just a notable sound, do you think, that you've created from the ground up that people might recognize and be like, oh, like... Essa Hansen, or that's her sound. Like, that's what she made. <laughs> um, when you say from the ground up, it makes me think of, like, the magic and magical superpowers because they're the most complex and usually built from all kinds of things. So it feels more like it was something that's been crafted. Um, so with Marvel, see, all of the magic in Doctor Strange, <laughs> if you watch Doctor Strange, all of Wanda Maximoff's newer magic and... Captain Marvel's powers in Endgame specifically. Okay, gotcha. Uh, and maybe maybe also I was phrasing that a little too limited in scope just based on my lack of knowledge. So I guess if I didn't say from the ground up, would your answer be different? <laughs> um, well, I think it like the, key, the signature things, like I could say cap shield or <laughs> something like, you know, a very iconic item. Let me think. Yeah, like uh, let's say the time travel in Endgame. That's sort of a, a signature thing. Yeah, it's hard. I've done so many little bits. Um, <laughs> yeah. I could even pick. <laughs> I could even pick something small, like um, Spider-Man's new suit, his eye blinks. That was something that was in one of the trailers, and the fans like went nuts and even noticed the sound, like like his eye servos have a sound, <laughs> and that was something I put in. We didn't think they would even play it, but it it got turned up in the end because everyone liked it. So that's like a little sound design thing, but it's not like a big superpower or you know, alien weapon. Yeah, although I don't know, because like, I guess superpower alien weapons, that's sort of like really visually grabs your attention. But I guess with sound, you have more things like the eye blink, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> well, 
One thing that I'm curious about also is just uh, you said that you like to convey emotion through sound. So <laughs> I would not have any idea how to begin with that other than like maybe basic music theory from high school band class, like your major keys sound happy and your minor keys sound like sad or ominous. So how do you go about conveying emotion through sound? That's a difficult question, but actually your music analogy, I think is right on. And also in that it's kind of hard to pin down, like some, some associations are obvious or even cliche, like rain is sad and thunder is ominous and wind can feel desolate. Um, but subtler emotional manipulation comes down to careful sound choice and details, you know, just like emotion and microtension and writing often comes down to word choice and pacing. In that sense, the how is kind of nebulous. In terms of sound choice, you can gauge your own subjective response to the sounds you're using and layering and choosing. And if it's making you feel the emotion you want the audience to experience, you're headed in the right direction. But it can take some digging around and trial and error to kind of find those specific sounds that are evoking something in you as the editor. I was listening to a Tone Bender's podcast interview you were in a while back where you were saying, I think Doctor Strange's cloak, you were given instructions like, oh, make it sound like it has a personality and it's like upset. And like, how do you do that with <laughs> rustling fabric? Yeah, well, that, and they specifically wanted it at one point to have a voice, but like, you know, a voice made of cloth. And I was like, all right, this is like classic weird sound design challenge. Like, let's give this piece of clothing a literal voice where it's like saying things or like expressing emotion, but don't use any kind of vocals. Um, so I ended up finding like cloth that's really zuzzy, like has kind of a zip sound to it. And you can perform that with your hands um, to get different motions out of it and sort of performing the emotion of it. And then I can pitch those to add even more kind of up or down emotion to it. So that sort of worked. And then there's other things like depending on the, you know, the thickness of the cloth or the thinness, how fast it's moving. You know, you use material and motion and speed and all that to sort of whether it's a happy, fast emotion or like something slow and menacing, you know, you have some tools, but it can still be tricky to figure out what is exactly is working. Right. Well, you have talked in multiple interviews before about having synesthesia. So if you're comfortable talking about it now, what is that like for you? Yeah, it's very, very hard to describe because by nature, the experience doesn't fit language very well. Like, for example, Sound frequencies to me will be a shape, a texture, also a motion and a density and like a location in my physical body where I'm feeling it. So, you know, how do I pick which of those aspects to describe? Um, and when I'm in person with someone, I usually end up like doing hand motions and stuff to, just because the language isn't working. Um, it also messes a bit with my proprioception, which is one sense of their own body in space, like where your limbs are and your balance. So... In a way, I also share the physical location of the material of the things that are making sound, if that makes sense. Um, and if there are too many things going on at once, it's sort of like being ripped apart in different, different directions, and I have to work hard to focus. But this all enters my fiction, I think, in the way that I naturally describe things. I don't always pick the obvious descriptor for a thing, and I focus a lot on sensory detail, material qualities, and motion. And I'm also hypersensitive to some things like temperature and textures on my skin. So my own world is by default very 
full and rich. And I think this is why my writing comes out sensory and immersive. Like that's just a normal mode for me. That is definitely something that I was noticing as I was reading Nofet Gloss. Um, and now that we're talking about that, uh, I guess I'll give you this chance. Do you want to pitch Nofet Gloss to us? Nofet Gloss is about a young man whose planet is destroyed for economic gain. He's thrust into a vast bubble multiverse and forced to grow up too quickly, physically, emotionally, and morally as he seeks out justice. Yeah, that uh, hits it right on the head. That's a very <laughs> nice, concise pitch. I think I probably have... <laughs> <laughs> took a while to make that one. <laughs> Yes, I can imagine. I definitely, uh, I would have had a hard time getting it under like a two paragraph description. Right. So like you were saying, and this is definitely something that I found as well, is just like uh, a lot of reviews have been praising your vivid imagination, how sensory your writing style is and all of that. So I guess just in general, how do you approach coming up with these outside the box world building ideas and then conveying them to readers on the page? Yeah, I've realized that the expectation people have is that I would need to work really hard at deliberately engineering my concepts, like reeling them up and putting them together. The boring answer is that generating these new ideas isn't difficult for me at all, especially since in my day job as a sound designer, I'm often thinking outside of the box, like to get source material to build you know, magic and technology and all of that because I can't go out and record it. So my biggest challenge is actually getting those my ideas on the page in a way that's clear and resonant for the readers. Especially since I like to come up with tech and biology that's by nature kind of difficult to describe. So I have to work to engineer my prose rather than the world building concepts themselves. In the first draft, I try and let the writing spill out however it occurs to me so I don't lose any sparks of inspiration or that unusual quality that readers are responding to. But I need to be very present when I'm editing and consider an audience that won't grasp the language I'm using in the way that I would. Do you have like a test reader that you run some of that by or do you kind of just at this point trust your own judgment on what makes sense to other people versus what makes sense to you? A little bit of both. I'm getting better at doing a clarity pass and sort of noticing, like weeding my own prose and also noticing um, the words that are, will throw a reader more than be evocative for the reader. Um, and my critique partners are good at sort of reeling me back in. <laughs> But a lot of them read, you know, weird fiction or literary fiction, and so it doesn't jar them as much as genre readers, but it's still helpful. And my editor will definitely flag all of the sections where I'm not making any sense at all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's interesting because that's it's two layers of like, I mean, you say weird, but I think it's really, uh, I guess, unique and interesting to experience as a reader uh, is just both in like your world building concepts and in your actual prose itself. Um, like. I've never heard of a uh, liquid spaceship before or like uh, <laughs> spacesuits that are anything different than, you know, just like sort of the skin type material with a little bubble helmet on top. Mm -hmm. And I like to actively like try and think of things that I haven't seen before in the genre. And that doesn't mean that it doesn't exist and someone hasn't already come up with it. But, you know, if there's space for it in the manuscript. I'll sort of sit down and be like, okay, brainstorm. What have I seen before? Like, what's the default for this you know, piece of technology? And what can I do that still has the same function, but, you know, is more interesting or fits the world better or, you know, could be used for a wider variety of species, that sort of thing. Is there like a particular idea or two that like you're just exceptionally proud of? Like that's the thing that you think of if people ask, oh, what's an example of like your cool ideas you come up with? <laughs> um, well, probably you mentioned the spacesuit. So I came up with this cloud suit idea that I think it's 
It was really fun, especially because that chapter, my character has to do a spacewalk and it was an added chapter late. Like I needed, I needed some action for pacing. And then I realized like my, no one has ever done a spacewalk before and I hadn't had to use spacesuits at all in the entire book. And suddenly I had need for a spacesuit. And it was sort of a quiet scene where I could introduce a new concept. So I was like, okay, you know, what have I seen before? You know, you've got the skin tight suit with a bubble helmet. That's pretty, pretty standard. And we've seen a variety of that in science fiction, like all different variations of that same style. So what can I do that's different? And the most different from that design that I came up with was like a cloud of literal particles around the user like a skin-tight material with gases that puff the molecules out and keep puffing it out so far that it's like an aura around them of these particles that are managing everything a spacesuit would, like radiation and pressure and um, oxygen and all that. Uh, and it's just fun as a writer, I think. So like taking the visual of that and when he's outside of the ship um, interacting with things, like what would that sort of technology feel like? What would it look like? What might it allow him to do that the normal spacesuit would not? Uh, like you said, it's very much uh, looking outside, I guess, our usual expectations for that, which is really cool. I definitely uh, had only encountered like that one kind of spacesuit before. <laughs> yeah, I figure if, if the idea is fun for me as the writer, then hopefully it'll be fun for the readers. Right. Yeah, that seems like it's a, a very solid rule of thumb for most things. And then so I guess another kind of outside the box idea you have is just the whole specific take on the multiverse itself that you had. So how did this bubble multiverse idea come about? This is one thing that my my agent pointed out when I first signed with her. She's like, I've never seen a multiverse like this before. Like, I don't think I've ever seen this. And a lot of multiverse um, world building deals with timelines or other dimensions. But I wanted one. So I do have a story for this, but I honestly can't remember if it happened after the idea had already occurred to me, which happens a lot, or if it was what sparked the idea of the bubble multiverse. But I was looking at um, macro photography of bubbles, which are really beautiful and interesting. And my brain naturally likes to play with scale. So like I'll see something small like that and then imagine it at, you know, galactic size. Or I might see a giant structure and then imagine what if it was really small. So a lot of my ideas for environment and technology come from that sort of playing with scale. Um, so I was imagining these, like a stuck together bubble structure on a massive scale and the idea snowballed from there. Like your agent, I had also never encountered this before. Uh, it's really interesting how, you know, you can be flying in the spaceship, you pass through this barrier and then all of a sudden like the laws of physics are different. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I wanted to kind of explore what, and I don't think I went into it a ton in this book and I want to in the other ones, like just the way things that can transform um, both biology and technology, um, or even weirder things. Um, but that was really an another thing, fun to play with as a, as a writer, so I hope that the readers find it fun as well. <laughs> right. Uh, speaking as a reader, it was definitely fun. <laughs> well, if, if you have like that original idea, because I think you've said in past interviews that sort of this bubble multiverse world, or I guess universe, is kind of the seed idea. So if you have that setting to start with, how do you then go about finding the proper story to populate that setting? Yeah, I started out, I think, using a lot of defaults which newer writers often fall back to, to reduce the burden when there are other aspects of writing that are challenging or unwieldy. Um, so I had a cool world and I needed a cool hero and a ship and a crew. 
And this book was my challenge to write something more commercial than what I had been working on before. So I was thinking along the lines of like Firefly or Guardians of the Galaxy, um, the typical dynamic crew that explores new worlds. Very standard fare. <laughs> but the special thing that happened was that I began to explore my main character's backstory, and that's where the story ended up starting, which gave me a more compelling character and a more focused plot and scaled the huge world down to a manageable size to begin with and introduce a reader into. And definitely I... Uh... Caden as the main character, his origin story on one level is kind of like, oh, you know, you have like your tragic origin story that then thrusts you out into the broader world. But I don't think I've ever seen it quite like this before, uh, where humans are like literally treated as, you know, feed for an animal more valuable than them. And that idea came up pretty early on. I was like the first thing that popped in my head when I was you know, working on his backstory was the idea that... You know, humans were growing feed. They didn't know why. And then those all get wiped out. And then the humans get shipped <laughs> to become the feed for what they were raising. It was sort of like nested logic in there. It was interesting. And just the reversal of expectation was interesting. And then I, you know, stuck a main character in that situation and then went from there. Which is a pretty dark start, I have to say, for a story that has like a lot of warm and fuzzy moments, especially with that core, like Firefly-esque crew of characters. It is. Uh, yeah, the, the beginning of the story hasn't really changed since I first conceived and wrote of it. But yeah, the tone, like there's a lot of sort of fun, fun action scenes and like tender moments with the crew and all that later on. Um, but it starts really dark. And I guess one thing I definitely noticed about the start is, I don't know, I feel like uh, in a lot of fantasy especially, but I kind of lean that way just because that's where more of my reading experience is, you'll have like a tragic story where like the main character's family is killed or even something like Star Wars, right? Uh, but you don't really have like this huge emotional attachment to what gets destroyed. But like it was like a gut punch for me in those opening <laughs> scenes when like Caden's wrenched out of his comfortable life. I'm glad it had the impact. <laughs> and also, yeah, it's, I like exploring the psychology. So like he, he not only loses his family and his world, but his whole function that he was raised for, like the whole worldview that he had is also destroyed. So he has to look back on the value of like his, what he thought was his family, what he thought was his world and like a comfortable life that he enjoyed. And he's seeing it in an entirely new light and it's, you know, invalidated. So he has to figure out, you know, who he is now, what his purpose is, like where to go with, while he's carrying all of that grief and trauma that, you know, he's, he's not really prepared for and while also dealing with this gigantic new world that he had no idea existed. It's like too much bearing down on him to handle it all at once. And in terms of like how he grows up to face that broader world, uh, I don't think I've ever actually seen an age up technology like what you have here. Uh, so like you've literally forced Caden to grow up physically faster than, you know, just time would allow for. So how do you approach writing like a character that's, say, 14 years old one day and then the next day he's 20 years old? Because it seems like that would be maybe a slightly traumatic experience and he wouldn't suddenly be like six years more mature overnight. Totally. And again, that's like the psychology that I really like to explore. Um, I'm sure I didn't get everything right, but I 
I like the idea and working with that kind of idea, like what would, you know, the neurology and the worldview be after that kind of experience? And actually, my original draft was much slower paced, and his aging happened in increments over the span of many chapters, which was great for a coming-of-age story and his bonding with the crew, but it wasn't good for a revenge plot and you know his theme of pushing himself too fast. So during edits, I condensed the aging more and more and then finally said, you know what, let's do it all in one go. That's more physically startling, more emotionally jarring, and it let me dig deeper into that interesting psychology of like, you know, how on earth does someone handle that sort of gigantic shift? That's funny because I think you even like actually mentioned in the text, the other characters are like, hey, are you sure you want to do this? Because like, you know, (laughs) normally we do this in increments over time, but if you really want to do it all at once, you know, you can. Yeah. Like, this is not a good idea. You're being stupid again. (laughs) I feel like those are like the eternal words spoken to any kind of book protagonist. Right. Don't be an idiot. Don't do it. Don't do it. (laughs) Oh, he did it. Yep. Uh, Well, so kind of uh, we've touched on this briefly, but when writing like these traumatic moments, how do you try to make readers feel that emotional weight? I personally love writing the quiet, intimate, more introspective scenes where characters are processing events. Um, And there used to be a lot more of these in that slower draft, but it diluted the pacing and the story themes to have too much, you know, slow internal scenes. But I find that that weight is really in the small details. I've learned this from my critique binders who do it much better than I do. You know, it might be a choice of phrasing or thought or a small detail of physical action or setting. If the scene has enough breathing room for it, you can convey a lot of weight in a tiny amount of words by using detail. Though I still struggle with recognizing you know, when I've stated an internal feeling too on the nose and I've already shown that emotion sufficiently um, in action and setting and all that. And the converse where I've put something in subtext and it's buried too deep for readers to pick it up. (laughs) It kind of seems like the eternal struggle, even though it's like one of the very first pieces of advice that most new writers get of the whole show, Mm -hmm. don't tell. Uh, But even like after you have a published book and everything, it's probably something that's still kind of a, a constant challenge. It does. Like my editor will point out, be like, you've shown this, like we don't need to, you know, have the thought or have the person say it like at such length. You know, I've done the thing twice, but there'll also be where, you know, you'll get questions of like, you know, I don't understand what this means or why aren't they feeling this? Or I'm like, oh, I, I thought it was there on the page, but it's actually not. So you got to dig up that explicate or that implicate information and explicate it. So yeah, it's a balance and I definitely need outside perspective um, to help me see where I have it right and where I need to work on it. Yeah. And I guess with an imagination as unique as yours, do you ever struggle with like, oh, what crazy ideas have I actually put down on the page and what is just like still floating up there in my headspace? I kind of do, but I also have running into, so I'm working on book two now and, you know, in a trilogy, you sort of need to escalate things and make it bigger as it goes toward heads toward the end. So I'm like, I've, I've put in so many interesting ideas in book one. Like I must outdo myself in book two and then outdo that in book three. (laughs) So I'm like trying to rack my brain even more and, you know, push those lingering ideas even farther because I don't want to try and one up myself. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, kind of on the flip side of trauma, but I think 
it relates somewhat with those quiet moments. Uh, the core crew of the Azura ship that Caden has, uh, they're kind of a classic example of why I love the whole found family trope. So how do you write a group of characters so that they feel like this found family rather than a bunch of, I don't know, people stuck in the same place together? Right. And that was another challenge that I wanted to try and tackle um, when I started this book. And so I threw my protagonist into a group of five adults who were already tight-knit and had established dynamics. And a lot of those relationships emerged organically as I was exploring the characters while scenes unfolded. Um, but I did pause later to develop backstory for each of the five and worked out the order in which they came together and formed their family, um, which really helped determine some of their feelings for each other. And to organize all of that, I created a grid to map out how each member felt about each other one. And this helped. <laughs> uh, it seems silly, but it really helped to pinpoint the bonds or conflicts that I hadn't shown enough on the page or, you know, I hadn't really thought about before. And I think that helps them feel uh, more interconnected and believably dysfunctional. <laughs> Uh, believably dysfunctional is a good word. And I love that idea that you have with that grid of relationships. I've never actually thought of that before, but it makes a lot of sense, right? And you can have that kind of as a handy reference guide for whenever you have new interactions between characters or a group setting to sort of see what that emotion is there. Yeah, I hadn't seen, like I hadn't read to do that anywhere, um, but I did it and it really helped. And I also did another grid that was each of the crew members, like what they thought about Caden. <laughs> Um, when he first came in. And it also showed me like where I wanted things to end up. So I knew I wanted Caden to have an effect on each of them so that they're all a little bit different by the end, even if it's something small, like a realization about themselves or something big, like they've um, they worked out a piece of their past um, that needed to be processed. Um, so let me see like the starting point and then I could show change by having like not doing the opposite, maybe, but, you know, showing progress. And, like, if they hate him at the beginning, maybe they've they've bonded a little bit more by the end, that sort of thing. Well, not necessarily, like, story meat itself, but uh, this is kind of an interesting year to be debuting as a published author. So what has that process been like for you? Interesting is a good word. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's an understatement for sure. yeah. Well, there's a lot this year, not just the pandemic. Um, it's difficult emotionally because more than ever, people need escapism. They need catharsis. They need representation. But that doesn't make it easier to try to promote yourself and say, you know, buy my book when the world is on fire. In some states like mine in California, literally on fire. And there are so many things that beg our attention other than books and trying to sell yourself, you know. But it's also difficult practically because authors can't get out to events or bookstores. You know, we're isolated from readers and booksellers and librarians. And I have deadlines for the next book. So I'm cramming to be creative and stable amidst everything that's been going on this year. And it's taken a lot. That said, everyone has been wonderfully supportive in publishing. More, more events are going virtual. And people seem to be making an effort to boost this year's debuts however they can, which is very much appreciated. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. It's good to see that there is some positive that comes out of it. But uh, yeah, <laughs> it's definitely yeah. a tough year. <laughs> Well, uh, what are you working on currently? I guess book two is probably your focus at the moment. Yeah, I recently turned in my first draft of book two. Um, so now I'm 
while I'm waiting on my editor, I'm pivoting and plotting out book three in the trilogy. Any chance uh, you'll be working on that? I think you said a nine book epic fantasy series or something <laughs> at any point. I have put that. That's on like a far, far back burner. I would love to pick that back up. Um, but when I look back on it, I can see like how it was so much more challenging than my skill level at the time. So it's sort of hovering around until, you know, I'm I'm developed enough to to tackle it again. Sure. Yeah, I think that's definitely a, a fair concern. Are there any books that you've just been enjoying lately that you can recommend uh, science fiction and fantasy or otherwise? So reading has also been on the back burner because of writing deadlines and other work, um, but I hope to get back to reading soon. However, there is another pandemic debut that I would love to shout about more. Shelley Campbell's grimdark epic fantasy, Under the Lesser Moon, releases November 7th, uh, which will probably already be out by the time this podcast episode airs. Um, It's sad, gripping, beautiful stories set in a complex Stone Age world with dragons. It has old myths and sacrifice and broken religion. So I encourage any fantasy fans to check it out. Yeah. So you're good at concisely pitching books other than your own as well. That definitely <laughs> sounds interesting. I think it's easier for, for other books, especially one that I just want to, you know, gush about. <laughs> right. Yeah. My own's a lot harder. I'm like, the instinct is to like try and condense everything, everything cool that you've put in the book into like one <laughs> concise <laughs> sentence or two or three, which you really can't do. You have to focus on a few things. Well, yeah, I mean, you've spent so much time in this world and coming up with everything cool that you can possibly think of. Like, I imagine it's hard not to share all of that. Right. Like, it's got this and this and then this kind of character who does this. It's got this crew. It's got this. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, final question that I always like to ask everyone is just what's one thing that you're excited about right now? Well, I'm excited about my upcoming book launch in a week and a half. (laughs) Um, My books got some lovely response from author blurbs and industry publications and early reviews, but it's both exciting and terrifying that it's going to be in many more people's hands soon. Um, But I hope the readers who need this book find it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Essa, this has been such a delight. Thank you for taking this time to chat. It's been awesome. Thanks so much again for having me on. You can find Essa Hansen on Twitter, Tumblr, and Instagram as Essa Hansen, or at our website, EssaHansen.com. NoFet Gloss is an incredible story of found family, revenge, and processing trauma. And the world is every bit as unique and memorable as a title like NoFet Gloss sounds. As always, you can find us over at TheFantasyInn.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server, where you can hang out with us in real time and find more books than you'll ever be able to read. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon, or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It really means the world. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.